on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, also passed by on the other side. Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him.
The next day he took out two coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Isn't that a powerful story? I could tell you, but it's a whole different thing to see it in action, right? We've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, or we, we, we know of it. Uh, we understand that it's good to do things for people in need. Uh, we have laws named after it, Good Samaritan laws. We, we have all of those things. But the story of the Good Samaritan is a great teaching tool. I mean, Jesus told it for that reason, what was to teach. And uh, this, this month, we've been talking about XO, love, relationships, and the church. Uh, and we, we've spent some time unpacking this idea of love uh, because we feel love, but love is so much more than a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a frame of mind. Love is a choice. Uh, all those different things. And uh, we, we started our very first week with this idea that love of God is foundational to everything else we do. And I built a pyramid out of blocks. And the bottom uh, level of the pyramid was love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that set the foundation for everything else. Because we know if our foundation's off, if there's a crack, if it's, unle- if it's not level, if it's all those things, then the rest of the structure is going to be uh, a little bit wibbly-wobbly, right? So we set the foundation first. And then last week, we talked about our relationship with our spouse and our family and how important it is to choose love and to choose grace and try to outserve and out-giving uh, mercy and outdo each other in love. Uh, and then this week, we're going to unpack this idea of the Good Samaritan. How do I love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We're going to talk about all of that stuff. But before we jump into that, I, wanna, I want you to understand the context of the story Jesus told here. Because for us, it, it, it was very visually stunning. Like, we understand how it works. We see it. But there are so many layers to the story that in our culture, we don't quite understand. So I want to unpack this just a little bit before we move on and, uh, so you understand it. The very first thing to know about the story is it comes out of a trap. This teacher of the law was coming to Jesus trying to trap him and trick him, which, which happened all the time. Uh, and he asks a question, and then Jesus, who's awesome, right, asks him back a question. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. Uh, the teacher asks, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, how do you think you'll inherit eternal life? Which, by the way, isn't that what we do with our kids, by the way? Can you do that? I don't know. Can you do that? You know, we, we do that stuff. And Jesus asks back, well, how, how, how do you do it? And the man responds correctly, Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, you did it. Here's your gold star. You did it. But the guy didn't, didn't stop there because if you read in scripture, it's a really interesting verbiage here. It says, but the man wanted to justify himself. So then he asked, who is my neighbor? I was really intrigued by this. So I, I, I did a little research on like, what, what did he mean by justify? And, and basically when you boil it down, what he was looking for was limits. How much do I have to love my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor so I can live to the letter of the law, right? Like, you guys understand the difference between letter of the law and intent of the law? Like, you, you can live by the letter of the law and still probably be a little bit morally gray, but there was intent behind it. He was asking Jesus to limit it. And these teachers in Jesus' time were very good about asking these limiting questions. They would do, you know, 
word for word what the law said, but that's all they would do, which is why Jesus would always come and, and, and say things in addition to what the law said, because he was talking about the heart behind it. But this guy's like, all right, love your neighbor, but who, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Please tell me so I can, I can do that and no more. Do you guys kind of get, get where this is coming from? So Jesus then responds with this story, and culturally, there are so many layers to the story that we, we don't get on a, just a casual reading. Uh, So Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience about a Jewish man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets robbed, which was unfortunately not that uncommon. So he gets robbed, and he's left for dead. And the first two people to pass him by are Jewish clergy. It's, It's the priest and the Levite. The Levite was a person who worked in the temple, and they just walked right by the guy. And so it's it's this really interesting just story because as a pastor, I'm like, I would never do that. Uh, and then, then God's like, well, really? <laughs> okay, God. But I, I read the story and I see that. And there, there, there's some Jewish customs. There was the, the laws about being clean and different things, which they used to justify. They would have used to justify why they didn't touch the man. They thought he was dead. They wouldn't be able to worship or do their job and do these different things. Uh, so these two Jewish leaders walk right by the man on the side of the road. And then a Samaritan comes and takes care of him. And we hear Samaritan in our context. We're like, oh, great, a Samaritan. Sweet. Good job, man. Uh, But to his Jewish audience, this was a shock factor. Uh, Jewish people and Samaritans did not get along. In fact, you could say they hated each other. Uh, The reason being is because the Jewish people, rightfully so, the Israelites knew that they were the children of God. They were God's chosen people. But the Samaritans were related by a half-sibling. So they were like half-brothers and sisters with the Jewish people, but they were not allowed to worship at the temple. They were not allowed to take part in anything. And they despised each other. And Jewish people would go out of their way to make sure that they did not encounter a Samaritan, right? So we're talking some like deep-rooted hatred of each other, which also makes Jesus encountering the woman at the well a very fascinating story, but that's a completely different different, uh, message. But so Jesus is setting the table. He's saying, your Jewish leaders pass this man by, but this Samaritan man whom you probably despise, not even knowing him, you just hate him because he's Samaritan, took care of this man, took him back and loved him and returned him to health and went over and above. And he gets to the end of the story and he asks the guy, and this is, this is like one of my favorite Jesus moments, right? Which one of these three was the best neighbor? And I picture the teacher with teeth gritted because he, he hated Samaritans, right? Didn't like them. The one who loved him, <laughs> the one who showed him mercy, just chewing on his words and hates it. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So there are, there are a lot of layers to the story that on a, just a really casual reading, we're, we're going to miss. But when you understand a lot of the cultural context involved, you can understand that Jesus is addressing not only loving your neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Everyone. Anyone and everyone. Even the people you hate. Even the people you just can't stand to be around. Even your coworker that just drives you nuts because they got that one super annoying habit and you just want to tell them to knock it off. And maybe you have, right? It's that family member that just drives you nuts. But yet, we are called to love our neighbor, and every single person is our neighbor. We've talked a lot about this agape love. It's a love that is steadfast. Uh, It's constant. It's a choice. It's not just a feeling. Because if we ran only by our feelings, we would not do a lot of things. And we would do a lot of things that we would later regret, right? 
Uh, It's just fascinating how much we make decisions based on emotion. But this agape love is the the Greek word that Jesus uh, uses here and Paul uses later is is a steadfast, action-oriented love. It's a frame of of mind. And uh, it's just a really good reminder that we're not always going to feel like loving people, right? There are a lot of times I don't feel like loving my kids because they're driving me nuts. But do I love them? Yeah, I love them to death. Uh, but sometimes I wish they would just, you know, not be so loud. <laughs> or they would just wouldn't jump on my back when I'm trying to lay down. Or, you know, whatever it is. There are times we don't feel like love, but we can still choose to love. So today we're going to unpack this idea of the Good Samaritan and how do we love our neighbor? How do we love our enemy? What do we do with that? Who is, who is anyone and everyone? Uh, why is that important? Because here's the deal. We're called to love anyone and everyone because of two reasons. One, God loves anyone and everyone. And secondly, because we are anyone and everyone. Does that make sense to you guys? I, I am part of that anyone and everyone. And you, you can think through your life, and I, I'm sure you can think of people that probably don't like you because you don't like them. But maybe there's some of you, you, you're just like, I don't know why, but that person just does not like me. When I, was a, when I was a student in high school or college, sometimes you just had that teacher that just didn't like you, and you're like, but I don't even understand why. I haven't done anything. And maybe that was part of the problem, but I haven't done anything to deserve it right? But we're still called to love anyone and everyone, and I am part of those anyone and everyone. Luke chapter 6, just a few chapters before we see this story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus talks about this a little bit, about loving our neighbors and enemies. He says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even quote-unquote sinners love those who love them. And if you're good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And if you lend to those to whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And I hear that, and, and I read that, and I, I know, like, love your enemies, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. But what caught me about the, that passage is, is here, because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, Uh, Guess who's part of that ungrateful and wicked? Me and you. And yet God pours out his love on us when we don't deserve it. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I don't deserve that love. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve mercy. Yet God chooses to pour those things out on us. It's a choice. We've done things, we've all done things that separate us from God, yet he chooses to love us in spite of our brokenness, in spite of everything that's wrong with us. He chooses love, he chooses grace, he chooses mercy, and ultimately sent his son Jesus because of that reason. And A, that gets me excited just thinking about it because, uh, man, it's, it's just incredible to me that God loves this messed up guy. He loves him enough that Jesus died on the cross for me. So anyone and everyone is us. And also we're told by Jesus later to go and make disciples and to reach anyone and everyone. Matthew 28, 19 says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Not some, not the people we like, not our coworkers, not just our family, but all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's really challenging to me, right? 
Like the, the last couple of weeks have been challenging because like, oh, is my foundation set? We talked about that. Am I loving my spouse like I should? Am I trying to outserve her? Am I doing those things? Am I loving my family right? And now we're getting to these top layers and they get a little bit more uncomfortable. Because I don't know about you, but when people don't like me and I don't like them, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want anything to do with them. And in fact, I try to avoid them as much as possible. And maybe we're Facebook friends and I block them. You ever did that? Like, you know, like we live in this really weird era, right? I can block you and never see anything on Facebook, but that way I don't have to defriend you because I could offend you that way, right? Like, I mean, really, it's just kind of bizarre when you think about it. Like, I just choose to not hear anything you have to say, but we'll still be friends. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. It just popped into my head today. So as we step into what I feel like are some practical steps for loving our neighbor, uh, I just want to take a minute and, and, and say something. Oftentimes we, we read scripture or you hear me talk about scripture and we think, man, the world was messed up then. Jesus had to address some really, really bad stuff. Or sometimes we think, man, they had no clue what it was like today. They don't understand our context. Things are so different. Really? Because in this story, Jesus deals with racism Jesus deals with deep-rooted hatred of an entire people group. Jesus is teaching in in a nation that's being oppressed by a political and uh, war society. And they were dealing with wars and rumors of wars and politics nonstop. Do any of those things sound familiar to you? Racism, hatred, war, politics. Oh man, sounds like the news I just watched yesterday. We, we get trapped into thinking so many times that my context is so unrelated to what's in Scripture. But the reality is, things don't change. People dealt with that stuff 2,000 years ago. We were dealing with racism and hatred clear back uh, in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Like, we were dealing with it back then. It doesn't change. We're still dealing with those things. Why? Because we're broken people. We're sinful people. We make mistakes. We let our emotions get the best of us. Yet, God is asking us for more. He's asking us to be countercultural and to love our enemies because that totally goes against everything we want to do or we're told to do, right? Anymore, when you, when you have a disagreement with somebody, they're like, oh, you're better off without them. Like, that's kind of like the standard advice, right? Like, just defriend them and move on. Block their number. Move on. But Jesus is asking us 2,000 years ago to be countercultural, to love our, to love our enemies, so how do we do that? Because culture today emphasizes this, this, this idea that my opinion is the only opinion, it's the right opinion, and if you disagree with me, you hate me. Right? I mean, really, think about some of the conversations, think about the things happening in the news, and really it boils down to like that idea. If you disagree with any aspect of my life, you must hate me. So how, how do we show people God's love then? How do we practically apply loving our neighbor and loving our enemy when they don't want our love because they consider it hate. We still have to look for ways to engage people and understand that every soul matters. Even if they say that you hate them, even if they say that your opinion makes my opinion invalid, like it, take all of that away. Ultimately, what matters is Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior for all people and eternity is on the line. Eternity is on the line. So regardless, we have to be willing to engage people, to talk to people, to overflow uh, our love for God out onto people. And it, it, we have to get through to people. It's, it's our call. It's our mission. It's what the church is called to do. But how? How do we do that? One of the first things we have to do is that understand that every encounter we have with somebody matters. 
Every encounter we have with somebody matters. Uh, I found a quote by Mr. Rogers. Like, you guys know Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, Are you my neighbor? My kids love uh, watching the cartoon show Daniel Tiger. That's how one of my kids learned how to use the bathroom by themselves. Like, it was fantastic. Mr. Rogers said this, though, and he's full of these amazing quotes, but he said, if you only could sense how important you are to the lives of those you meet, how important you can be to people you may never even dream of, there is something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. Every encounter you have is an opportunity to show God's love. Every conversation, every social media interaction, every face-to-face meeting, every argument is an opportunity to show God's love. And man, I don't like that. Because the reality is like, you don't know the next time you're going to run into some people, right? You don't know the next time you're going to engage somebody. But what about that opportunity you do have in that moment? And I'm not saying every, every single encounter you have to like whip out the Romans road to salvation and like try to evangelize every single time, though we should do more of that. But Man, treat people with kindness, right? Be loving, be forgiving. I could go on and on about this point. I'm going I'm to move on to a few more practical things. But every encounter we have matters. Every encounter we have is an opportunity to pour out God's love. So what are the practical applications? Well, I think I, I've got five different ideas for you to try that could help us engage in love, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. The first one is this. Uh, how do we show love to all of our neighbors? We don't live in hurt. Because I have a newsflash for you, people will hurt you, intentionally or unintentionally. And the reality is, the closer they are to you, the more they hurt you. So what do you do? Do you you live in that hurt and just be, you know, injured the rest of your life? It's really easy to do that. Or do you forgive? And that's a lot tougher proposition, isn't it? to forgive somebody. Uh, There's an encounter that Jesus has with Peter in Matthew chapter 18. And Peter's my man, right? I like Peter because he's like down to earth and he's like every man. Uh, But he asked Jesus and he's asking the same question, type of question that the man in our our, uh, Good Samaritan story asks. He's asking a limiting question. Once you hear it, you'll understand, right? Matthew 18 verses 21 through 22. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And I think he was feeling kind of generous. So he said, up to seven times, right? Do you hear what Peter's searching for? He wants a number. He wants to be able to say, all right, that was number seven. Anything after this, it's over. And internally, do we do stuff like that? We've got like an internal score sheet, don't we? That's it. That's the last straw. You're done. But Jesus goes on and says, no, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And depending on which translation and which person uh, is telling you about the story, it's either 77 times, 70 times 7, or 70 to the 7th power, depending on how you, you read it and you look into the Greek and Aramaic and study it. I don't think Jesus was looking for a, an exact number though, right? I think Jesus is saying, you should forgive somebody so many times that you lose count. Why? Because that's how God forgives us. That's how God forgives you and me. If we were on a score sheet, we'd be done already. Man, shoot, if there's a limit of 10 million times I need forgiven for, I'd I'd run out of that score sheet too. But Jesus is saying, don't live in hurt, forgive. And don't limit it. 
There's a place for boundaries, but there's a big, big place for forgiveness. So don't live in hurt. The second one is this. Don't reply in anger. Some of, some of us, and I, I don't actually, this is not me, but some of us really struggle with when we're upset or things go wrong or somebody wants to start a fight with us, we are ready. We are more than ready to let you know how I feel in this moment. And I'm not going to do it in a very nice way. Anybody like that? You don't have to raise your hands, but I'm watching. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. But I've worked with people like that. Um, one of my bosses at North Central was like just, it felt like he was just ready to just chew me out for whatever. Uh, and it's really easy sometimes in situations to respond in anger, isn't it? Especially when you're really frustrated. And oftentimes we take this out on our spouse, our kids, and our coworkers. And those are like the big three that we get like super frustrated with. And we just want to like love them with the love of Christ really tight and shake them just a little bit longer, you know? But part of loving people and loving our neighbor is to not respond in anger. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And if we're really honest, how many times do we make a situation way worse by our response? We dig ourselves a hole. I don't know about you guys, but that is 99 times out of 100 what I do when I'm in an argument with Jody. I just keep digging. And I don't know that I'm digging until the hole is really deep. And then I'm like, I'm dumb. But anyway. (laughs) But we make situations a lot worse by the way we respond. But what if we responded with love? And we bit our tongue just a little bit. And took a few moments. Took a deep breath. And responded with how we feel, but not out of anger. It'd be a powerful experience, wouldn't it? Because that's not the standard reaction. That's definitely countercultural. Because man, if you make me angry, I'm going to go Facebook rant on you right now. You aren't even ready for my Instagram post, right? Don't respond in anger. Number three is this, be patient. Even with the annoying people in your life. Because we can all think of annoying people in our lives, right? Some you can't get rid of because they're family. (laughs) Uh, Some are just people you work with. And sometimes, have you ever had those people like you, you, you really get along with and you're like, we should be friends, but man, they just annoy the snot out of me. You ever interacted with people like that? I've had plenty of people uh, that I've worked with through the years. I'm like, man, we should get along, but we just don't. (laughs) We should be friends, but that one thing you do or the way you talk or whatever, it just, I'm out. But you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says about love? Love is patient. It's the first, first one there, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It goes on to describe a lot of different things. But if, if we're really going to be the hands and feet and we're going to really be God's love, then we have to be patient with people, even our enemies, even the people who annoy us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says this, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Parents, that means with our kids, too. Be patient with them. And some of the most difficult decisions that you're going to make is to be patient with them and let them make decisions on their own and live with the successes or consequences of their actions. But guess what that is? That's love. Because love is what? Patient. Love is patient. Number four is this, and this might be one of the most difficult ones I'm going to propose to you of a practical thing we can do, is to pray for those who hurt you. 
because you hurt me, so I don't want anything good for you. That's my human reaction, right? Especially when somebody's really, really wronged me and it's a deep hurt. The natural desire of of our human nature is not, let me pray for your soul. It's, let me pray that God ruins your life. That's what I'll pray for you for, right? Just, if we're going to be honest, that's what we feel. We don't want to pray for people who've hurt us. We don't want to pray for people who've wronged us. We don't want to pray for our enemies. We don't want to pray for people who annoy us. We want to pray for my family. I want good things to happen to my family. I want to pray for my kids that they always grow up loving God and loving church and and have a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to pray for uh, the lost people on the other side of the planet. Uh, I will pray for anybody but those people. Right? Our attitude and actions tell us that. But the reality is Jesus asks us specifically to pray for those who hurt us. Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 and 44 says this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is countercultural. That is not what we're supposed to do. That's not what's socially acceptable. Uh, What's socially acceptable is the black ball, right? Like, Don't have to talk to you anymore. Don't have to pray. Don't have to think about you. You're taking no more of my headspace. But Jesus specifically goes out of his way to say, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. He's countercultural because he did this all the time. He would say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And he says, this is what's cultural norm, but I'm saying do this. And praying for your enemies, that is a constant countercultural thing. I don't care if it was 2,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, like, or 2,000 years from now. Nobody's going to want to pray for those who hurt you. I don't. I don't feel that kind of love for them. But I also understand God gives me that kind of love. God gives me that kind of love when I don't deserve it. God poured out his grace and mercy and love on that cross 2,000 years ago for me. And every soul matters. Even the worst of the worst person in your mind, their eternal destiny matters. And that is one of the hardest concepts for us to understand and and not just understand, but believe because it goes against every fiber of our being. Because if they've wronged us, if they've hurt us, and some of us have been really hurt by people we really care about, and yet we're supposed to pray for them. And that is just difficult. But if we're going to be the love of God, if we're going to show people the love of God, that's what we have to do. Because every single soul matters. Your eternal destiny matters. On the heels of that practical application to pray for those who hurt you, uh, I I found this and I I just love the concept, is to turn an enemy into a friend. And when when I was researching, I came across this concept. I said, what? I don't want, they're my enemy. I don't want them to be my friend. <laughs> There's a reason we're enemies, God. And it didn't really click until I, I saw an illustration about it. And I want to share that illustration with you. Uh, it, it's this. When the Civil War had ended... There's a group of angry Southerners that gained an audience with uh, Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln. They wanted to voice their complaints. Uh, you guys know those meetings, right? Like, hey, we need to talk you got some time to talk? And you're like, oh, this is just not going to be good. This is one of those conversations. But they sat down with him and, and, and it said his gentle, friendly manner soon thawed their icy hostility and left them with a new respect for their old foe. 
when a northern congressman insisted that Lincoln must destroy and not befriend his enemies, Lincoln smiled and replied, am I not destroying my enemies by making them my friends? And I was like, man, Abraham Lincoln's a genius. Like, you know, like there's some presidents you look back and you're like, man, you were really smart. And some you're like, I don't even know your name. Uh, but Abraham Lincoln is definitely one that I thought was really smart. And then I read that. And I'm like, man, the dude's a genius. But really, here's what he did. He took scripture that he read and applied it to his life. Proverbs 16:7 says this, when the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. Lincoln was well studied in scripture. He knew what the Bible had to say about loving enemies. He knew what the Bible had to say about being gentle in answer and kind at heart. He understood that and he applied that to his life. So maybe there's going to be opportunities where you can sit down and talk to somebody and, and you can love them. And sometimes when you love people enough, man, they, they soften. And the relationship can change. And it's something only God can do because in our, in our current reality, you're like, no, no, no. We don't get along. We don't talk. This is not going to happen. But God's asking us for a little bit more than that. God's asking us to try, to do what we can. And it's always important in these moments to remember that we can only do what we can do. We can love people. We can pour out into people. We can show mercy. We can show grace. But ultimately, who changes their heart? They make a choice because of what the Holy Spirit's doing in their life. We just get to play a part in it. We get to be the hands and feet. We get to show love. We get to do those things. But we can only do what we can do. Does that mean we should like be like, oh, yep, I tried God. Rest is up to you. Scripture said so. No, it's letter of the law versus intent of the law, right? Should I try to help my friends and enemies? Yes, I should do everything I can. But ultimately, I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit speaks to their heart and they respond. Because I can't do that. I can't make a person change. You can't make a person change. Man, wouldn't life be so much easier if you could just change somebody just, just a little bit? Just one thing. Turn off that annoying habit. Make them come to church, you know, make them love their kids, their spouse, whatever. Like one change would be awesome, but we can't. We have to leave that up to the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can be the hands and feet. We can be tangible love in situations. We can, we can show our enemies God's love. We can pray good things for them. And it may be with gritted teeth. And it may be saying, God, I don't really feel this way, but their soul matters. Their soul matters. Would you stand with me? I'm, I'm, I'm going to close here. I thought this was a very fitting conclusion to our, our relationship series on love, relationships in the church. Because now we've, we've taken a bunch of internal things, right? How's my love for God? How's my love for my family? And now we're moving to external love. We're getting outside of our people group. We're getting outside of our bubbles. And we are uh, being called to be the church a group of imperfect people